Father, I thank you again for your word. I ask this morning that you would take our minds and transform them. We give to you our thoughts, and I ask for your help as I preach, that we would be able to see you in your glory, in your truth this morning. Open your word to us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to put on the screen that definition, you can just leave that up while I preach. Imminent is an important word in theology. It's an important word because it speaks of one of many aspects or attributes of God. Imminent means, it's an adjective, describes a noun. It means existing or operating within or inherent. The definition I found there, particularly speaking of God, permanently pervading and sustaining the universe. Scholars talk of God's transcendence and his imminence. God is completely outside of creation. He is not bound up in it in any way. He does not need it. It is something that came forth from his word. He's transcendent. He's out there. But he's also imminent. He is right here. He is sustaining the creation, upholding it. And here is my main point this morning. God is right next to you. He is right next to you. Whether you're aware of it or not, he is right next to you. We're in this preaching series where we're talking about treasure that is hidden in a field, buried treasure, and the joy of finding that. When we find the treasure, if we actually see what it is, says Jesus' parable, we will go and give all that we have to come back and purchase that field and then possess the treasure. God is right next to you. That is the treasure that I want to point out this morning. Central to Christianity is not religion. It's not philosophy. It's not how to live. It's not morality. It's not any kind of ideology. It is a person. Central to the message is a person. And we oftentimes go into Christianity trying to understand the religion maybe or what is this all about. And the buried truth that we find is God himself made known from his word. We find God. I picked that passage from Luke 2 because I love how the, the shepherds were just doing their job. They were just out on the field. They were tending their sheep. They were doing what they're supposed to do. And just instantly, suddenly, manifested right out of the atmosphere, out of heaven, in the atmosphere, was an angel and then a whole multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and with great glory. And of course, they were afraid, but then the word came, don't be afraid. We have good news for you. And I want to think about where does that come from? Where is heaven? Or as the one song says, how far is heaven? The idea is that it's right here. There's even an awkwardness to the translation of the Greek. In, in the ESV, they, they say in, in Colossians that um, he, it, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. But literally, if you, if you want to translate it literally, it's in the heavens and on earth, which can mean, of course, the cosmos, the sky, the universe, whatever. But it can also mean right here. The kingdom of God is right here. The, the, that is visible and invisible, seen and unseen. There is an unseen reality to everything. And some come to the place where they can start to see it. You behold it by faith at first and eventually by sight. So this morning, I want you to think about where is God to you? And I want you to understand that he is eager for his children to push through the veil that obscures their sight, to push through the veil for more of him, 
to be able to behold him. In the scriptures, there are two, uh, several, but there are two main veils I want to point out. One is the veil that separates the holy place, the holy of holies, from the outer, the inner and the outer courts in the temple, of the original temple uh, that was built, and it's now been destroyed. It's no longer there. The other is the veil that is over people's eyes until it's lifted, and then they behold who God is. They can't know God. Their minds are darkened. Paul put it really well in an opening letter to the Romans. He's explaining why God's wrath is upon mankind. He says in, in Romans 1 um, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But what happens is humanity in our sin, we become darkened and we suppress the truth. And so now we can't see God. We're only able to see the physical creation. We're not able to see the spiritual realities behind it or even to pick up God's imminent presence right here in the midst of it. And God's desire is to take that veil off so that we can see him And his redemptive work is about restoring what was lost. It's about coming back to the relationship we once had with him. I I don't really listen to this kind of music on the radio very often, but since, you know, the battles in the car with your family picking stations, I oftentimes find myself listening to pop radio. And there's a song that I actually like the theology of. It's describing the human condition quite well. It's called Counting Stars by One Republic. I know some of you know the song, you've heard it, and as, as the artist sings, he's got it spot on. He says, I feel right doing the wrong thing, and I feel wrong doing the right thing, and everything that kills me makes me feel alive. He's describing the condition of fleeing from God and going after the very thing that is worse for us. He's got the, he's got the doctrine of sin nailed. Now, the song, as far as I can tell, doesn't speak of the solution. That song probably would point to human love would be the solution to the problem, which is not going to solve the problem. It needs to be a divine love with God. However, that's where our hearts go. We go to the very thing that will kill us. We want the wrong stuff because of what was broken in us, fundamentally broken when we disobeyed God. Of course, Adam, as soon as he disobeyed God, tried to hide from God. Adam and Eve hid in the garden. But if God is imminent, if he is everywhere pervading creation, how can you possibly hide from him? David, at one point, King David must have thought about fleeing from God because in Psalm 139, he very poetically says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as a light with you. So there's nowhere that we can hide from God, and yet the condition is such that we keep trying to hide from him, so much so that we can't see him anymore. There's like a veil over our eyes, and it it keeps us from beholding his glory and having the relationship that we were designed to have. What's more, in the last two or three hundred years, education has compounded the problem and has 
given us reasons to, not good reasons, but reasons to not believe in God. There, there's this idea that fools believe in Christ and enlightened, intelligent, educated people are not superstitious. And remember, I'm talking about Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. That's kind of my guide for this preaching series. And one of the things that he points out, being a professor of philosophy in Southern California, well, he's passed away now, but when he was teaching, he was in the academy. He was there with the educated elite, the ones who were the thinkers of the day, the ones who were the authors. And Dallas Willard makes a really helpful observation. He says there's this really powerful but vague and unsubstantiated presumption that something has been found out. He underlined, italicized it. Something has been found out that renders a spiritual understanding of reality, as in the manner of Jesus, simply foolish to those who are, quote, in the know. Something has been found out. The smartest ones among us have found out that it's foolish to believe in Jesus or have a spiritual understanding of reality. The ones in the know can tell you, don't believe, that's foolishness. He goes on, he says, but when it comes time to say exactly what it is that's been found out, nothing of substance comes forth. What did you guys figure out? Tell me about it. So we've got some scholars out there, really brilliant men and women, who are studying science and they're thinking and they're doing research and they're publishing and they're saying things like this. Atheism is not a philosophy. It's not even a view of the world. It is simply a refusal to deny the obvious. In other words, you, you fools are denying what is obvious, that there is no God. That's Sam Harris writing. He's a neuroscientist and a very outspoken critic of faith. He, wrote, he has a book called The End of Faith. But he's claiming that it's obvious that God is not here and doesn't even realize the veil over his eyes. There's no purpose or meaning, and says Sam Harris to the world and creation, this is all just meaning, meaningless. He doesn't realize that that's not finding something out. That is an ideology. It's a philosophy. Other people, even in, the, even in the theological community, have made some very bad conclusions. Listen to what a man named Rudolf Boltmann wrote in the 1900s. He was a German theologian, a scholar of God's word, but he was highly influenced by um, a number of Enlightenment thinkers. He comes to this conclusion. It's impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. And I want to say, why? I mean, electrons move down a wire, and we get electricity. Who made the electrons? Who specified how they would move? Why can't modern medical breakthroughs just help us understand the one who made the body? Why is it weird that there would be spirits and miracles in the Bible? So many, this man included, critical scholars have tried to take the New Testament apart. Let's pull out what they call the kerygma, the teaching of it. What is the ethical teaching of it? And then let's put all this hocus pocus magic stuff on the side. Jesus didn't really walk on water. Jesus didn't feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves. Jesus didn't heal or cast out demons or do any of that stuff. All that's superstition. Let's just get the moral ethical teaching and let's go love people. That's where his theology ends. And it's messing with people's minds. Now, thankfully, we're in a postmodern moment. There are some things about postmodernity that I really like. For instance, there's a huge desire for spirituality right now. 
People are, are not buying all of this anymore. They're looking for spiritual experiences in all sorts of places. But we're starting to have an openness to the veil being lifted. Could there be a God? Where, what's behind all this science and math and all this breakthrough? I'm thankful for people like Francis Collins from the Genome Project who came to the conclusion, well, he's a Christian, he's a Roman Catholic Christian, and he's also an, an incredible scientist, and he makes the observation wisely that science does really well with the natural world, but it doesn't work so well in dealing with the supernatural world. In other words, he's got his categories right. He says, both of these worlds matter to me, and both illuminate one another. So I can look to my faith and see a God who created everything, and then I could go over here and look at the creation and try to understand the order to it. And when I see the order to the creation, it should point me back to the creator. And I should say, wow, look what he made. This is amazing. And yet, our minds have become darkened. And because of the brokenness of our hearts, we keep going back to fleeing from God and not giving him credit where we should give him credit. So what do we do with that? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is understand that Jesus has come to redeem the whole of creation, people and things and everything back into its right place. And we have to think correctly. So here, I'll give you the quiz. I've given you this before. Eventually, you're going to start to believe this. And in the context, you'll get the answer right. Who is the smartest man to have ever lived? Jesus. That's the right answer in church, always. But here's the the thing about it. That's the right answer outside of church as well. But I want to be honest with yourself. If you were sitting in work and somebody was doing a random survey and asked that question, would you have naturally jumped to Jesus? Or would you have Einstein or, you know, different brilliant thinkers? You would not naturally jump to Jesus, probably, because the categories have been set up such that Jesus is a, a mystic, he's a rabbi, he's a religious leader but he's not really a thinker. He's not that smart. And what Dallas Willard points out is you will struggle to say Jesus is Lord if you cannot say Jesus is smart. I think that's right on. We've got to start understanding that Jesus is the smartest man to have ever lived. Otherwise, why would I fashion my life according to his teachings? I'll find somebody smarter and live that way and then save the Jesus for kind of the mystical spiritual stuff. But they're so close that how you live and what you believe have to line up. And I'm telling you, Jesus is worth believing in because he's the smartest man who's ever lived. That's where Colossians is so helpful. Colossians 1 says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, or the footnote says, for by means of him. He's the instrument, in other words. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created everything. He created the electrons that run down the wire that light up this room. He created the airwaves that your cell phone uses to communicate digitally, analog, all the different, whatever words we give to it doesn't really matter. The science behind, the actual physical creation behind it, whether it's visible or invisible, he made it. He made the stuff we use. Scientists are studying the stuff God created. And God is at work trying to draw us to himself. He's left his fingerprint all over the place. Where did the information on DNA come from? Something, someone very smart put the information there. Some scientists are getting to the place where they go, wow, this does point to God. This isn't an accident. This is impossibly well put together. Others still have the veil. 
Where are you with that? Do you see trusting Jesus as something to be ashamed of? If you admit that in a very smart crowd and take some ridicule for it, are you, are you prepared to handle that? The Bible tells us that those who believe will be considered foolish by the wise ones of the world, that the gospel is seen as foolishness to, to the world because of the darkened hearts and darkened minds. I'm hoping that you will rethink things. Do you think Jesus is the smartest man to ever live? I, I was, obviously, I've, I was way down into math and physics this week. My reading just kind of took me there. I thought about how those angels manifested on the hillside to those shepherds. You know, we live in, we, re, we, we experientially live in four dimensions. You know, 3D, length, width, height, and then time. We're very aware of those four dimensions. But almost all the scientists, if you start getting into quantum physics and string theory and all this stuff, they have math that is suggesting very strongly that there are 10 or 11 dimensions, only four that we're in touch with and and aware of, but there are probably 10 or 11. Guess who made all of those? So for him to disappear from the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then suddenly be over with another group of people is not surprising to me. For him to walk through a solid locked door is not at all surprising to me because he made it. And I trust that in time we'll understand more and more of this stuff. That science is not going to get to the end of it and go, ah, see, there is nothing here. Science is going to continue to say, look how great the creator is. And it it will move us to better worship. Not only did he make the stuff, but he's sustaining it right now. God is right next to you holding you together. If you go on reading through this, in verse 17, it says, and Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The glue, the, I mean, there's, there are technical terms for all this stuff, but the proteins of your body are held together by a substance. I was told at the early service that substance actually, when you look in a microscope, is in the shape of a cross. Not that that says there's God, but I just think it's interesting. And that's being held together. All things are held together by him. It's not you wouldn't be able to live without him. You're in the palm of his hand, even though he's invisible to you. So I think walking on water, no problem. Now, here's where one of the obstacles to Christian faith comes in. If he's able to heal and he made the body, why hasn't my sickness gone away? Why am I persistently dying? Why is this problem there? And I can say this. We know that he loves. We know that he's good. And we know that he's not above suffering himself. And if I trust that he knows all things and is all-powerful, and he's benevolent, he's a good God, then I have to come to this conclusion. I don't know why I'm still sick. I don't know why I'm dying. But I know that God has a purpose for it. And it's a good purpose. And I can trust that because of how he's proven himself in every other promise. So just like the man born blind, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. This happened that God's glory might be displayed. So sickness in your life is an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. He's actually more interested in an eternal scale than just this physical life we're in. So all of our bodies are wearing out. All of our lives have brokenness and suffering and problem in different capacity or different volumes, different sizes. However, God uses those things to prepare us for eternity. He's working on our soul and not just our physical body. He's teaching us to have a relationship with him. He uses those things in a very powerful way. 
So it says, it goes on, it says, he's the beginning. I love when he's arguing with the Pharisees and they're fighting over whether or not Abraham was legit. And he, he goes, before Abraham was, I am. And they try to stone him to death because by saying he's I am, he claimed divinity. And he's saying, I existed before Abraham. And they go, you're not even 50 years old and you're telling us that you were before Abraham? Yes is the answer. Because Jesus was there before anything was created and all things were created through him. He's the first, he's the beginning. He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the the A to Z, if you want to put it into English language. He is the first, but he's also the firstborn of all creation. That's where it gets a little confusing because you think, well, no, Adam was born before Jesus, but Jesus was the first one resurrected. No other person has ever been resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated and then died again. Nobody except Jesus has a perfected, resurrected body. But that day will come for all of us. He's the first, and his resurrected body helps us see what ours will be like. Maybe in this passage, what is most, I guess, appealing to me is when it talks about in verse 20 that through him, God, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So even though, like the song says, the things that, that kill me make me feel good and the things that make me feel alive, that, that, that whole backwards thing, he, he's trying to reverse that. He is reconciling his people and the creation to himself. God is longing, in the words of A.W. Tozer, for his redeemed people to push through the veil to behold him. Now, two simple ways to do this. One is to reconsider your thinking. How do you think of Jesus? Is he the smartest man to have ever lived? Do you really believe that? Do you read his word that way? I want you to consider what you think about God and ask him to renew your mind and your thinking. The second thing is to pursue him in spirit. And what does your spirituality look like? There's a little bit of shame, I think, for us of trying to learn how to have a relationship with God who is spirit and not physically here. So we do certain things and we feel uncomfortable about it. Do you ever close your eyes and worship? I do it all the time because I find that the physical surroundings distract me occasionally. If I close my eyes, I can stop thinking physically and start thinking spiritually. God is here. He's right next to me. Close your eyes for a minute and just feel him. Okay, God. Now that's weird. People will think you're weird for doing that kind of stuff. You have to learn how to pray. Because we're broken, we don't know how to relate to him. But God is in the business of removing the veil. And we come by acknowledging false thoughts that we've had, discrediting him, uh, letting other people influence us. I'm I'm deeply sad that I missed an opportunity in college when I took a class called Science and Pseudoscience. It was just an elective. It looked interesting. It was trying to find, over here we can legitimately call this stuff science, but over here this is moving way more into theology, philosophy, ideologies, science or pseudoscience. And the professor was so dogmatically against Christianity, he just basically bullied the class from his little, little lectern. He had a pulpit from his pulpit. And I was a, you know, lowly, I think sophomore then. I was not sure. I wish I had taken on something like Darwin's teachings, because now I feel better prepared to do that. Darwinism is a theology. It's not a science. There's science to it, but then it drifts very quickly into other kind of ologies. And you know what I wrote my paper on? The Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) Totally missed the opportunity there. 
but I got bullied by other people for making me feel like, make, made me feel foolish for believing in Christ. I didn't renounce Christ. I just wasn't strong enough to stand up for him. Starts with the mind. What do I think about God? I don't have to have all the answers, but the scientists don't have all the answers either. The smartest ones don't. God is lifting the veil and he wants us to push in towards him. We have to renounce the tendency to go away from him. We have to renounce the wrong thoughts about him. We have to ask him to renew our mind. And then when we read his word and we start to see these amazing passages like 1 Corinthians 15, we start to experience him in a new way. And we know him. His desire is that that we would know him. That's the buried truth in the field. That's the treasure. Is that we don't find a religion we find a relationship with God himself. That's why we come to communion. We're gonna meet with him here. He's right next to you. Sell everything you have and buy that. Get that treasure. It's eternally valuable. Would you pray with me? Lord, we lift up to you our thoughts this morning, our minds. You've given us the ability to think, to reason, to study, to interact with other people in their minds and thoughts. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking you are smaller than you really are. Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief. We want to see you. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Thank you for being here in your house. Visit us, please, for we love you and we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.